Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Monday morning, the 28th of January. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. Uh, no deal Brexit would involve customs posts. It would involve people in uniform. And it may involve the need for cameras, physical infrastructure, possibly a police presence or an army presence to back it up. The problem with that in the context of Irish politics and history is those things become targets. The Taoiseach's comments in Davos are being interpreted in different ways, but Leo Vradker has for the first time laid out how government is expecting life on this island could change in 60 days from now. The UK is due to leave the European Union on the 29th of March in Westminster Tomorrow, the House of Commons will consider some 14 amendments to the draft deal, but there is little prospect of MPs agreeing to a divorce agreement which will be acceptable to the EU. The European Commission says there will be a hard border if a deal is not agreed. The EU's chief negotiator, Michel Barnier, said that goods travelling north to south on this island will have to be subject to checks. The clock is ticking down. David Cullinan, Sinn Féin's spokesperson on Brexit, joins us this morning. And good morning to you, and thank you indeed for joining us. Uh, there's been some alarm, I think, over what the Taoiseach had to say, but was the Taoiseach not just spelling out the obvious? Uh, well, first of all, I think it's uh, outrageous for the Taoiseach to talk about the possibility of soldiers, either Irish or British soldiers, on the border. I think the Taoiseach would know that uh, that is very irresponsible. And uh, while he would see that possibly as a possibility in the event of a, a hard crash and an ordeal, I think what surprises people is that on the one hand, the Taoiseach has categorically ruled out what I would see as the more responsible approach, which is to allow people north and south to have a vote on a border poll and end partition once and for all and have no border. The Taoiseach says that's irresponsible, but yet in the same breath talks up the possibility of soldiers mm. at the border. And we had two Do big events. Do you think that a border poll might result in soldiers at the border as well? I, no, I don't believe so. I, I, I can't see how a border poll, which is giving the people a democratic right to express their views well, in the ballot box... Because it will completely polarise views. 
Well, listen, I don't believe that we should be talking of the possibility of violence in the context of uh, the implementation of the Good Friday Agreement. Well, former PSNI officers are are talking of violence in the context of the the negotiations. Former PSNI officers are talking it up in the context of if we allow a hard crash Hmm. to happen and we allow a hard border to develop. Right. And do you agree with them? That's in the context of a hard crash. But what I'm just Mm. saying to you, if you listen to me for one second, Michael, is that Mm. the way to avoid a hard border is to put a border pole, is to have no border and to end partition. And if I can just make this point very quickly, the Good Friday Agreement was endorsed by 77% of the people in the north and over 90% in the south. That provides for a border pole if it seems that a majority of people north and south will vote for it. Again, we've had two opinion polls over the course of the last number of days which shows that there would be a majority north and south in the event of a hard crash. And while I want a border poll in the next number of years, we're saying only in the context of a hard crash should that border poll be brought forward as quickly as possible. But our clear focus in Sinn Féin is to actually get an agreement that protects the backstop, that ensures that the insurance policy that's in place in the event that there is no trade deal agreed between Britain and uh, Europe that the North stays as closely aligned to the rules of the customs union and single market as possible to protect the all-island economy. That's what we're trying to do. The reason why we're facing a hard crash has nothing to do with politicians in Ireland, with the exception of the DUP, but more to do with the fact that we have a deep-rooted, long-standing, historic conflict in the British Tory party in relation to its attitude to Europe. And... We cannot allow a situation where the backstop is done away with or nuanced or weakened to try and break a logjam in Westminster when that's not the issue. Um, and we also have to be clear that what the hard Brexiteers want is not some simple tweaking of the backstop. They want us gone altogether. They want to pull the rug from under Ireland and take away our protections. And that simply cannot, and in my view, will not be allowed to happen. All right, well, we've seen a, a bomb attack in Derry and it seems to me that what the former PSNI officers, Alan McQuillan and Hugh Ord, are saying is pretty much in line with what the Taoiseach is saying and that in the event of a no-deal scenario, we're back to a situation where you have these items such as customs posts which become targets and in that scenario, you need somehow to protect people uh, and that would undoubtedly involve military uh, and well that's what I was just going to say unless I'm mistaken you seem to be agreeing with it well what I'm saying is that we should avoid getting into that space and the only way we can avoid getting into that space is to allow people to vote on the possibility of a border poll because here's how I see it mm. uh, the majority of people in the north and the majority of people in the South do not want to see any return to customs posts, to checks or inspections, and certainly not to soldiers at the border, policing the border, manning the border, or anything like that. We've had a peace process and a Good Friday Agreement, which makes that clear that that is part of our past and part of our history. So what we should be doing is not talking up the worst-case scenario in the event that we sit on our hands and do nothing and don't plan for the obvious eventuality or contingency is that we put the issue of a border pull. That's what needs to happen. Now, the other thing we can do, of course, and this depends on what happens in Westminster over the course of the next number of uh, 
uh, days, weeks and months is what happens in terms of the withdrawal agreement and what happens in terms of whatever future negotiations will happen between Britain and the European Union. I still believe and I still hold the view that a hard crash is the least likely outcome. But the point is we could end up in that situation more by accident uh, and not by design. Mm. So we're focused on what we want is a solution which protects the entire island of Ireland, protects the all-island economy, and avoids a situation where we end up in that doomsday scenario of having checkpoints, mm. insulation points, or soldiers at the border. There's a way to avoid that, and my point in relation to critiquing the Taoiseach is that, on the one hand, he seems to think that it's irresponsible for people to talk up the logical solution of a united Ireland through a democratic, fair referendum north and south, but yet seems to be happy to talk up the possibility of soldiers on the border, however unpleasant that may be for him. So there's uh, options that can be taken and should be taken by the Irish government to avoid that, uh, but yet they don't seem to be able to uh, agree to that. And and I don't understand their position, given that in such a scenario, a majority of people, in my view, north and south, would not want to see uh, a hard border and would in that context vote to protect the all-island economy and to vote for no border and end partition. Well, the Taoiseach's argument, as I understand it, is uh, let's not go there. Uh, he's spelling out what will happen if that's where we end up, uh, but let's uh, come to some sort of a, an agreement. Let's make what, a deal. So what you're saying, no, but this is in the event of no deal. That's yes. the whole point. We want but a deal the, as well. But let's separate them out. I'm on the same page as the Taoiseach mm. that we want a deal and mm. we want to avoid a no deal scenario. And you're on the so, same page as the Taoiseach in terms of how that may end up in a, a return if, to violence and the need uh, if, for if soldiers. We, if we board. don't put yeah, in place yeah, the yeah, obvious yeah, contingency. Yeah, but my yeah, point is this. Yeah. If the Taoiseach is not prepared to support the holding of uh, a border poll in the context of no deal, so if he's saying that the only scenario then, the only outcome will be the possibility of having soldiers at the border, I think that's irresponsible. I think the more responsible thing to do is to say, listen, we want a deal. Uh, that's over to politicians in Westminster. We've negotiated a withdrawal agreement. Within that withdrawal agreement is an Irish protocol and a baseline, bottom line set of protections which aligns the North with the South in terms of customs union and the single market. That's what we want. And we will even support... Uh, um, the uh, the option of fleshing out the political arrangement because what the backstop says and hardwired into it is that it, it remains in place unless and until something of equivalence or something better comes along. And the something better is that there is a customs arrangement agreed between Britain and the European Union. So we want that as well. Mm. Irish politicians want that. A, so uh, if that happens, that's, that's, that's a good outcome. If it doesn't happen mm-hmm. and there's a hard crash then we're, we are faced with the prospect of a very hard, harsh border. And I leave it to your listeners to make up their own minds as to what option they would want uh, in such a scenario. Okay. I don't believe the majority would want soldiers at the border. I mm. believe the majority would want no border and end partition. Well, there's a, a lot of people on this island or on these islands that did not grow up with a hard border on the island of Ireland. There's a a lot of people who are negotiating uh, how the United Kingdom might leave Europe, uh, who were too young at the time to remember life with a hard border on the island of Ireland. But there are some of us who are old enough to remember what that was like, and also old enough to remember that Ulster would never surrender. Uh, There's two sides in the risk to the peace process, and the fear I think that some people would have is that a border poll would see a resurgence in loyalist extremists. 
Well, I think the flaw with that argument is that we're essentially then saying that we cannot implement the Good Friday Agreement because of a threat from a small minority of uh, loyalists who would engage in physical force. I don't believe that that would be a reasonable course of action for either an Irish government or a British government or for the European Union to adopt. Uh, So the Good Friday Agreement, as I said, was endorsed by the people of the North and people in the South, and it provides for the holding of a border poll. And it is the case that unionism itself has always said that they accept that if a majority of people in the north of Ireland vote for a united Ireland, then that's the express wishes of the people who live in the north. And remember, that was an historic compromise mm. by nationalists and republicans who allowed for the holding of a referendum north and south. Okay. It had to be passed by a majority north and by a majority south. Okay. Now, is there the possibility mm. that some extremists might engage in violence, that's always a possibility. Yeah, but of course there's a possibility. Uh, But you could also fuel that possibility. And it it seems almost senseless uh, in this day and age uh, to ask uh, senior Sinn Féin representatives such as yourself, David Cullinan, if you condemn uh, the bombing in Derry. I've no doubt that you do. As I say, it seems almost senseless to ask you that. But in the event of a border poll, and that poll being lost, that Ireland wouldn't be reunited uh, uh, by the will of the people. Uh, well, then what's that going to do in terms of fueling that type of Republican action? Well, first of all, I don't believe there is uh, any threat of any violence coming from mainstream Republicans. I think, again, you're talking about people on the fringes of both nationalism and uh, loyalism mm. and unionism, and they are very much on the fringes. What we've But what kind of a threat was there in 1960? Well, if you want to go back and have uh, a discussion about... But that's where these things start. Yes, but this came about as a consequence of a deeply unequal uh, partitionist and, in fact, sectarian Mm. state where we had British troops on the streets, where you had Mm. nationalists who were seen as second and third class citizens, where you had ordinary nationalist people who were being shot dead on the streets of the north. So I don't think we're going to go back to anything like that. And I think it would be... Well, people might have said that in 1960 or in 1950. I mean, this is going on 800 years or whatever it is, and we've had 30 years of trouble. Well, with respect, we're in 2019. No, I understand that. In 2019, Mm. what we have now for the first time is an historic compromise between nationalism and unionism that's called the Good Friday Agreement. And the Good Friday Agreement makes clear what options are open to both unionism and nationalism in respect of the constitutional Mm. position. So that's agreed and that's the framework in which democratic but politicians, it, including myself, work towards. But if I go back but, to Brexit but, but, for a but, second... But with respect, that argument for a border poll runs the risk of polarising opinion. And people dig their feet in, and we've seen it. And, you know, you have to concede that there is the threat, the risk, to, the risk at least, of history repeating itself. But you, you are never going to get 100% of people in the north or south to agree to a united Ireland. The point is mm. that the but majority... To, but you go back to 1916, most, most of the people in uh, the country uh, were quite happy to be British citizens. It was a few extremists at the time uh, who uh, gained popular support because of how they were ultimately treated. Well, I think we're going to go around in circles if we go back to the 1960s and then go back to 1916. Well, we're in 2019 and we're talking about... Yeah, but I would have thought that about, <laughs> Sinn Féin of all parties would be able I might to make be the able to, I might be able to finish this point if I can, yeah, yeah, Michael, because yeah. I've, I've got your uh, opinion, and if I can give my opinion, my opinion is that what we need to do is to avoid at every possible 
chance to avoid a hardening of the border. Mm -hmm. That's actually the position of the British government, the Irish government Mm -hmm. and the European Union. What we have at the moment is a deadlock in Westminster uh, and that needs to be obviously uh, uh, dealt with. Uh, Politics in in Britain is stuck and they can't seem to agree a formula to proceed with uh, Brexit. And you have hard Brexiteers, and this is the point, who are using the North and the bottom line protections that we've achieved in the form of the backstop or the protocol to try and uh, undo that backstop and undo and pull the rug from under Irish politicians. What we want to see is a deal between Britain and the European Union that protects the interests of the island and indeed protects the interests of people in Britain. That's what we're focused on. And that's where the, I think the attention of politicians needs to be. And we have supported the Irish government in getting to a position where we have the withdrawal agreement. The only context in which we're talking about an immediate holding of a border poll is if politicians in Britain are so irresponsible that they allow a hard crash scenario where World Trade Organization rules apply and we're faced with one part of the island completely outside the customs union and single market at one point part inside. And do you think that and they the will... inevitability of checks sure. and, and, okay. and, and all that comes with that. Uh, and do you think that they will be that irresponsible? I mean, there's uh, two of uh, the 14 amendments that are being talked about, in particular one from uh, Graeme Brady, who's uh, a Tory MP, and he's suggesting changing what the backstop is, which would mean that it's not the backstop. And uh, if Europe is true to its word, that won't wash. Uh, and there's a, another amendment uh, being tabled by a Labour Party MP, Yvette uh, Cooper, uh, which looks at extending Article 50 to allow the British time to find uh, something that would be agreeable to them and to the European Union. What well, do you think will happen? In, in short, I don't believe that uh, the politicians in Britain and the politicians in Westminster will allow a hard crash. The fear is that we could fall into this by accident more so than by design, but I hope that it's the least likely outcome. Um, there is, as you pointed out there, a minority of hard Brexiteers in the Tory party who want to remove the backstop altogether because what they want is a Brexit that's about deregulation, that's about a race to the bottom and that will have an impact on workers' rights and have an impact on giving Britain, as they would see it, a competitive advantage in terms of trade over the rest of Europe. I don't see that happening. What I do see as a possibility is that... Uh, Yvette Cooper's uh, amendment, and she's a Labour uh, parliamentarian, which rules out a possibility of any hard crash. Now, if that was to pass tomorrow, I think that would be a game changer. And then we're into a set of negotiations, as I predicted on your programme some time ago, Mm -hmm. that would put flesh on the bones of the political agreement. Because the, the only solution I can see here that ensures that we don't have a land border in Ireland or a border in the Irish Sea is that Britain as a whole signs up to a form of a customs partnership which does exactly what the backstop does, which is that the north of Ireland stays as closely aligned to the rules of the single market to protect the all-island economy. If that, uh, if that uh, is, uh, is, is the case for Britain as a whole, I think the DUP would be on board with that. Maybe not the hard Brexiteers, obviously, but it would get the support of the opposition and a significant number of Tory MPs. It's how we get to that space now is the question and we'll see what happens in Westminster tomorrow. Yeah, and would you agree that two and a half years into this discussion that we've been having, it's uh, impossible to predict the outcome? Well, I think it's depressing that we're two and a half years mm. into the discussions and we're still talking about a hard border and soldiers at the border and, and checkpoints. Mm. I think that's the most depressing thing. We were The whole point of the backstop was to make sure that at the very least 
Uh, and this is the point I'm making is that the British government always also had this as their red lines for Ireland, avoid any hardening of the border and protect the Good Friday Agreement. So even given the fact that we're still talking about this concerns people, and I know that what businesses want, what farmers want, what citizens want, either side of the border is absolute certainty. And there was, as you know, a big demonstration at the border at the weekend by border communities mm-hmm. against Brexit. There was a massive event in the waterfront in mm-hmm. uh, Belfast, 1,700 people from civic nationalism who are looking at beyond Brexit and what's in the best interest of the people who live on the island of Ireland. And that democratic discussion is ongoing uh, and can't be wished away by any Irish government or any other Irish politician. Okay, well look, thank you indeed uh, for joining us uh, and and sharing those opinions and discussing them with us. uh, And uh, just uh, before you go, can we extend condolences to you and uh, your family on your recent loss? And thank you, as I say, for joining us uh, this morning. Sinn Féin's spokesperson on Brexit, David Cullinan. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Now let's uh, spend uh, a few minutes talking with uh, the principal of uh, the Mary Mother of Hope Senior National School, which is in Castahini. It's on uh, the Dublin Mead border. And uh, McGorman has come in to us uh, this morning uh, uh, to tell us uh, about a crisis uh, that you're facing in, in terms of providing services uh, to the local population, the children who attend your school, and uh, indeed to the parents who hope uh, that uh, their classrooms will be fronted by what we would call a teacher. <laughs> Good morning. Absolutely. It, and it is a crisis. Mm. You're right to introduce it like that. Um, there is a, a severe shortage of teachers and has been over quite a number of years. More pronounced at post-primary level in, in, in the past than at primary, but in the last two to three years, we've noticed the crisis coming into mm. the primary sector. The difficulty getting qualified primary school teachers was present maybe even three years ago but only toward the final term of the school year when we would find difficulties filling sickness or maternity leave mm. those kind of um, And the crisis absences. that you're facing at the moment is maternity leave you've uh, three yeah, female teachers it's, out it's, on it is. it's, it's, mm. it's filling maternity leaves they, it, and it has been there since the beginning of this school mm. year. So the crisis that was there, you know, by term three a couple mm. of years ago is the entire length of the school year. We don't have difficulty at the beginning of the school year recruiting teachers for the whole year. Mm. You know, with, with, with the with graduates coming out of college, that we seem to be able to finish our recruitment by the end of August and get people in for the full year for September. Mm. But it's the breaks of service happen mid-year after that point are becoming impossible. I'll give you, for instance, um, last week one of my colleagues in Dublin 15 had 13 teachers absent. She got nobody to replace any of the 13 okay. through sickness. Mm. In my case... I suppose I that happens. I mean, it's a different thing if you have 13 teachers out on maternity leave. Yes, but, uh, if it's, there's it's, an outbreak of flu or winter vomiting... We almost yeah. give up on replacing a teacher on a daily basis yeah. for a short term sickness there's nobody there but in my case I have three long term vacancies that I yeah. can't fill. And of course maternity leave is an extended period of leave, six sure. to nine months now. That's true. Possibly yeah. up to 12 months yeah. I think. With, with statutory mm. and unpaid, yeah. and many yeah. teachers mm. will take unpaid um, leave after mm. that, which they're entitled to statutory unpaid. Um, they're entitled to do that I should say, so if they do that that means we have a longer period to, to replace them with mm. and in my case I have one um, position that has been vacant since the beginning of December right through till June, haven't been able to fill it Another position became vacant from the middle of December through June. Haven't been able to fill it. Mm. I've, recru- I've advertised three times. I have been to phone calls to principals who might have a sub 
in Galway in Mayo to see mm. if they'd be willing to come to Dublin. Um, I've even spoken to teachers. I've offered them accommodation. Mm. We will source it. We can't pay for it, but we'll source accommodation. Right. You know, um, mm. that's the lengths to which we are going. You know, potential <laughs> teachers are interviewing us. Mm. And I'm sure you take people on based on their credentials and not sure. on their gender. Uh, but uh, is gender a part of this? Uh, the makeup of graduates, uh, I think, uh, lean towards females uh, in more recent years. There's more female women teachers than there would be males, particularly at a primary level. Sure, that's a statistical mm. fact mm. that there are. There are, you know, many times more female um, applicants for positions and taking up positions in the training colleges there for mm. many more females than males coming out into the system. That's a statistical but fact. But without being discriminatory, uh, is it a, a, a cause of the problem uh, that you've got more women, more people on maternity Well, leave. men can't have babies, so only women can have babies. Yes. So that, mm. That's not a discriminatory thing. That's a fact. And, mm. you know, people are entitled to raise a family and mm. to, to expect to be oh, you know, to yeah. go on yeah. maternity yeah. leave. Mm-hmm. That isn't the mm. issue at all. The issue is that we aren't recruiting enough and we're not training mm. enough and we're not paying them well enough to keep them. And I think mm. that seems to be the bottom line. When we look at where are the young graduates, regardless of their gender, where are they going? What's mm. happening to them in the first couple of years? And so many of them are taking, you know, long-term yeah, positions abroad. And, yeah. mm-hmm. and um, some of them are paying off, you know, massive college bills mm. because, you know, a, a lot of the courses now require masters, which are very expensive. So if you're doing the master's course, mm-hmm. you end up coming out of college with significant bills. So that seems to be a factor. Others maybe are going to, to, to raise a deposit mm. for a home and so on. Um, there are people wiser than I who are in charge of this, who mm-hmm. are supposed to get it right, and have consistently gotten it wrong, and I've gotten it wrong for quite a long period of time at this mm-hmm. stage. But as principals, we're kind of fed up of it at this stage because we're getting it in the neck. Mm-hmm. Um, parents really unhappy that their child or disruption in their child's education. We're trying to reassure them that we're doing our best, but I can't magic a teacher. And I suppose so. What happens now? I mean, you're, you're down three teachers effectively on a permanent basis. Well, yeah, back when they had their babies, yeah, but until, in yeah, terms of yeah. how the parents are looking at this, uh, there's no prospect of uh, substitute tomorrow or the next day. Is no, there? not yeah. and 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 every day I wait. I mean, yeah. I, I have recruited for these positions. I've three times I've gone through mm. the recruitment process. So what are you doing? Emerging classes, or? sometimes we'll have to split classes mm. on a short-term basis. Uh, two of my positions are within the special needs. Unfortunately, it's that area that, okay. that, that loses out which isn't mm. fair either yeah. you mm. know so it's it, there, there are no simple answers mm. to this and h- no how many children are affected well if you have three teachers every child yeah. you know you know we're roughly teacher of every 25 kids okay. so yeah. you know mm-hmm. do the maths there you know it's, <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah, it's, yeah, it's yeah. serious yeah. Yeah. and I suppose when I was talking to your researcher last Friday we had our principals conference last mm. Thursday and Friday and, you know, it's an issue that the Department of Education will say, well, we're aware that in some yeah. areas there's an issue. That's that's just not true. You know, th- this we've been pointing this out for the last two years at least, That is that, that the problem has been persistent mm. and not gone away. And to say that we're aware that's an issue in some areas is really disingenuous. Okay. And it's, it's not doing us any favours. As I say, mm. we are there. We're a, a school where we induct our own teachers mm. in the Drihid process. So if there's any mammies or daddies who have... Yeah. Teachers, beginning teachers who haven't got work at the moment, uh, Mary Mother Hope Senior National School in Little Pace would be yeah. very happy to talk well, to that's them. It, yeah, and that's why you're here, really, because well, uh, you're in a crisis, and I'm sure are, you'd rather uh, be back uh, at the school sure. managing that crisis yeah, than in here. But it, it's absolutely, to but highlight this, we have to highlight it, yeah. and we have to, you know, we have to put that awareness out mm-hmm. there. And uh, there are people wiser than me who would yeah. make these decisions, but they need to step up. And you've three short-term contracts uh, that yeah. you're ready to sign. Yeah. 
this Hope morning. MS.ie. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> if, if somebody wants to come in and sign the other side. Oh, yeah. right. Well, look, thank you for coming <laughs> in to talk to us Not this morning. Much appreciated. And uh, McGorman is uh, the principal of uh, the Mary Mother of Hope Senior National School in Castahini. Michael Reed on LMFM. Well, as you've been hearing, Sinn Féin TD in Loud, the Melden Monster, is concerned uh, that nursing home residents are being charged for services that uh, should be covered uh, by medical cards like wound dressings, prescription painkillers, beds or creams, and services like physiotherapy or occupational therapy. And she joins us now. And a very good morning to you. And thanks indeed for joining us here on the programme this morning. It's not necessary that the nursing homes are doing anything wrong is it? It's just that if these people weren't in nursing homes themselves uh, that their medical card would cover the cost of this. No, it's, it's the law of the land is that if you're in receipt of a medical card that all of these things would be covered what, what's happening at the moment is that um, private nursing homes are charging medical card holders for exceptional items that would be available for you to charge if you lived at home or if, if you're in a pu- public nursing home, you know, such as um, wound management dressings, uh, the, the likes of physiotherapy, occupational therapy, speech and language therapy are not being provided in the nursing homes and families have to pay for these therapies themselves. Whilst if you're living at home or in a pub, mm. public nursing home, you would have these free of charge for the virtue of the fact that you have your medical card. Yes, but your entitlements have not changed because you're living in a nursing home, have they? Well, the law of the land says that that shouldn't happen, but the reality is that it is happening. You know, the, the law of the land says that if whether you're under the Fair Deal scheme, you know, the Fair Deal scheme would provide services like um, there's an onus on, under the Fair Deal scheme it would cover, say, bed and board, laundry services, personal care, you know, appropriate to the level that mm. care that the patient needs. And then the medical card is supposed to cover all of the other aspects that you would ordinarily get if you were living at home. But the reality is in some nursing homes that that's not happening. Mm. And as a result... And it uh, is some. In some, uh, it is as you believe it should be. Uh, But Nursing Homes Ireland says uh, that uh, there's... Uh, an interpretation of uh, or you may interpret uh, what goods and services are under fair deal differently that uh, there's a narrow definition and that it's resulted in a discriminatory practice whereby people in public nursing homes are getting a better deal than those who are in the private nursing homes No that's not the case, the law of the land clearly states if you're entitled to a medical card then you're entitled to these services and if you're in public nursing home then you're rightly given those services but if you're in a private nursing home, you're being charged for those services. And as a result of this, large bills are being given to, to um, or large bills have been mm. raised by the nursing homes on families. And these families have already been deemed not to be able to meet their medical expenses. That's why they've given a medical card in the first instance. If you look at, like, some of these private nursing homes have a contract with the pharmacy. It's like a, a service level agreement between the nursing home and the pharmacy. And as it stands, we've, ne- we've no way of knowing. We need confirmation. If under the, the it's called the primary care reimbursement scheme, mm. or more commonly known as the hardship scheme, right? And we need confirmation that if the, did the nursing home make an application under this hardship scheme for those exceptional items? Because if they did, 
then they shouldn't be passing those charges on to the patient or the patient's family. Or if they were refused under the hardship scheme, did they then seek an alternative under the scheme that's approved? You know, such as mm. the, the generic version of the brand. If the brand wasn't approved, then did they seek the generic version? Or they could make an application. They could, or they should, mm. to the HSE social care manager for the supply of the, the product free of charge, similar, say, to the provision of the free incontinent pads for, for medical card holders. Yeah, but the medical card doesn't uh, cover all uh, health care, does it? I, I mean, you could go to one occupational therapist as a medical card holder, uh, but what this is outside of nursing homes, obviously, mm. uh, but wouldn't be able to go to another private operator uh, that isn't covered by the scheme. No, but you would have... HSE provided, you know, yes. like the public uh, and isn't that, that sort of thing. Isn't that, what, isn't that what's happening effectively? Uh, that if you're in a public nursing home, you're going to a HSE provided facility so you don't pay. And if you're in a private nursing home, it's not covered by the scheme in some cases, so you end up paying. Yeah, that's that's what's happening. Yeah. But that uh, and that's, it shouldn't be happening is the point. It okay, be but... It, that you should be entitled to the same... You have the same rights to the same entitlements regardless... If you have a full medical car, regardless mm. of whether you're living at home... But isn't it that you end up paying for it one way or the other? There's no such thing as a free lunch or whichever way you want to put it. And if, let's say, you're in a private nursing home and the therapy is covered by your medical card, the charges of the nursing home will increase. Well, no, because if you're, enti- if you're covered under the medical card, then your medical card covers that, the same as it would cover your, your run-of-the-mill monthly medical prescription. Mm. You know, like if you're on heart tablets... Or, you know anything like that? That's covered. But the nursing homes say that the, that that are being charged. But the nursing homes say they don't get a, a enough subvention to operate. That they need to do this in order to be able to provide the service. And I gather that the upshot of it is is that if they don't charge individually for these services and therapies, uh, well, then they'll in charge their uh, they in, they'll increase their charges overall. No, it comes back to again. I keep saying to it, uh, saying the same thing. Mm. If you have a medical card that entitles you to this service, regardless of what it is, whether it's wound management, dressing packs or mm. physio, you are entitled to that service free of charge. Okay. And there's a onus mm. whether you're on the, in the public nursing home or the private mm. nursing home. But I take it you can go to one nursing home uh, which will charge you €1,000 and another nursing home that will charge you 2000 well, well, under the Fair Deal mm. scheme, you know, the, it, you fair, still pay fair for Deal it. scheme versus versus a public nursing home, but the mm. fair deal scheme is kind of bed and board, if you like, mm. and, you know, the, the, yeah. the basics. But won't but the bed and board charges increase? No, because you're covered. The state will cover under your medical card, just as they do with everything, everything else that's covered under your medical card. I have had examples of constituents, mm. families of, you know, have somebody in a private nursing home have been asked to pay... now. I mean literally hundreds of euro in one month alone for dressings. Literally, I'm talking literally hundreds. And there's a, there's a culture of fear out there and families mm. are afraid to speak out because they're dependent on this nursing home to provide care for their elderly relative. And some of them that have raised issues have been told very bluntly that there are other service providers if you don't mm. like our rules. Oh, and I'm not suggesting it's right. I've heard of one particular incident where 
uh, a patient was charged for the doctor on call and when it was questioned they were told that the doctor on call wouldn't come out unless uh, they were paid uh, and of course that should be a medical card service. Of course it's a medical card and I've also he- heard of um, incidents at constituent- constituents again come into my office in relation to respite patients. Mm. Um, respite patients have been made to pay for the statutory charge for their medicine twice and I'll give you an example. If Say, for example, um, you're at home and you collect your monthly prescription on the first of the month and you have your four weeks prescription at home, but you're due into respite care um, on the 15th of the month. Would you're not allowed to bring your medicines in with you. There's another start. The, the nursing home will apply again, despite the fact that you say, no, I have my medicines for the month. I'm in here for two weeks, but I have my medicines with me. No, you're not allowed to bring the medicines in. There's another statutory charge They've paid for medicines twice, but the patient is charged again. Okay. And so, look, it's it's a case of, I raised it with the minister last week. It's it's really serious, and it's very worrying that people are afraid to speak out because of it. But when you have families being asked to pay hundreds... Mm -hmm. And for families listening to us this morning, perhaps it's something for them to consider at the outset when they're considering nursing home care for their loved ones. Well, it's, yes, yeah. well, mm-hmm. that's, that's always the case. But at the same time, you know, they're removing public nursing homes and the whole big business of private nursing homes is taken over. But HICWA needs to come in here um, and examine, you know, have a look at the financial aspect of how this is working because if people are entitled under their medical mm then they're entitled regardless of where they are. And in the meantime, I would say to families who are under pressure to pay okay. charges. Sorry? And ju- just to mention again, Nursing Homes Ireland has said uh, that uh, it is a, a problem uh, that uh, has resulted because of HSE policy and has discriminated uh, against some patients, but uh, the nursing homes who are charging uh, aren't doing anything wrong. Uh, just before we finish up, uh, you wanted to mention the fears about jobs in Coca-Cola. Yeah, well, the statement on Thursday um, it's very worrying for for workers, you know, I know it's it's been the the statement itself is quite, you know, it doesn't go into detail as to how many, but it's suspected that maybe one in four could lose their jobs. You know, there, there could be fifty redundancies, but it's 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 the fact that it's pending a review and the review is supposed to be completed by the end of two thousand and nineteen, but this year. But it's a long wait for workers to worry whether or not they're going to be one of those workers that's going to, to lose their job. You know, it's a, they're uncertain of their job, they're uncertain of their future financially. And, the, like, Coca-Cola has, was always known to a really good job, you know, well-paid, and that's a rarity these days. So um, I have written to the, the Minister Humphreys, Minister Doherty, the IDA, and I had um, spoke, left a message with the general manager of Coca-Cola needs to ring me back today just to get clarity. But there's an onus on the government to do what they can um, to, to intervene, you know, and try and convince Coca-Cola of the merits of staying in Drogheda and, you know, the fact that we have such competent workers and workers that have been loyal to Coca-Cola all through the years. You know, we have to make sure that we we have very little investment as it is, so we need to do everything to protect the jobs that we do have. OK, well, as you say, clarity is what's needed at mm-hmm. this stage uh, and hopefully that will be forthcoming. We leave there for the moment and thank you indeed for thank joining you. us uh, this morning. That's uh, Sinn Féin TD for Louth, Imelda Munster. 
Now let's find out what you've been saying to us. Marie Kearns uh, joins us with some of the calls and text messages that have been coming to us this morning. Good morning to you, Marie. Good morning, Michael. Welcome back. Paddy in Navin was in touch and he was listening to your interview at the top of the programme with David Cullinan. And he says it annoyed him because Sinn Féin, they seem to have the answers to everything, yet they won't take their seats in the House of Commons. They won't vote. And they haven't stood by any solution themselves. He says, a load of waffle. I'm not a member of a political party, but just listening to Sinn Féin on Brexit really annoys me. All right. Well, would you vote for Sinn Féin if they did take up their seats in the House of Commons, Paddy, I wonder? I don't know, Shane. I'd imagine not somehow. Shane is from Dundalk. The end of March is fast approaching. And yet, Michael, we are nowhere near a solution. Cannot understand why MPs in the UK want to do this to Northern Ireland. If there's a hard border, people, both sides will suffer. Well, hopefully it's only brinkmanship and uh, there will be some solution or the solution that will uh, eventually be reached is uh, delayed. Siobhan wants to know, Michael, what will happen tomorrow if Theresa May's proposal is voted down again? Uh, well, we're into uncharted waters, as uh, they say. Uh, it looks uh, as though uh, there's uh, a number of possibilities. There's 14 amendments. Uh, I don't think uh, the uh, deadline has been reached yet, so there could even be more than that. Uh, they may not uh, vote on the 14 that they have in front of them now. Some of them may be merged into others. Uh, the Speaker will decide on which ones will be debated. Uh, they may come to an agreement in Westminster, uh, but that'll be nothing unless Europe agrees to what they're agreed on. Uh, They may decide to delay uh, Article 50 uh, and that may uh, mean that uh, nothing will happen until... I don't know, maybe the middle of next year or something. To give everyone mm, a little bit yeah. of breathing space. Maybe though, if that so, happens. yes. Yeah. Mm. Chris from Drogheda phoned in on the same topic and he says, I'm listening to David Cullinan uh, on your show, Michael. Mm-hmm. They can't even get Stormont up and running, the two fractions. He feels that Sinn Féin are living in cloud cuckoo land, as he puts it. A border poll should be squashed straight away. Get Brexit sorted out first, that uh, a united Ireland will come in time. But now he feels is not the right time, that it could generate serious problems. And he Mm. says, let's remember, we are just 30 miles up the road. And he feels that if uh, there was a border poll and it was successful, that there would be, he feels, a return to violence from dissidents on Mm. the other side. And he says, we should leave it, let it come, it will happen, but... That's the sensible thing to do at the moment. Well, I think there's uh, real arguments on uh, both sides of the issues uh, that are being raised on the Stormont issue. I don't think it's possible uh, to get Stormont back up uh, and running until the DUP are of a mind to do so. And I'm not sure that the DUP would be of a mind to do so when they're running Northern Ireland uh, from Westminster, it seems. And uh, for as long as uh, Mrs May depends on uh, their confidence and supply, well, then that obviously has uh, the Brexit consequences uh, that are of such concern. Let's uh, talk uh, about uh, something else uh, and indeed uh, how some of uh, the traffic wardens are enduring serious uh, abuse, it appears. Uh, This is uh, featured on uh, the front page of uh, the Irish Daily Mail today following a Freedom of Information request to all of the county councils in the country. 11 councils, including Meath County Council, replied and that 
that's led to the front page headline, Road Rage Traffic Wardens Abused. And the Mail reports uh, that they're spat at, poked, punched, rammed with cars, hit by bread rolls and water bottles. The shocking extent, as uh, the paper puts it, of uh, the abuse uh, traffic wardens suffer uh, laid bare in the paper today. Let's hear more about this uh, from Brendan O'Brien, who's Public Administration and Community Sector Organiser with SIP2 and represents traffic wardens. Good morning to you, Brendan, and thanks uh, indeed for joining us. I suppose uh, there's uh, some concern uh, over uh, how people view traffic wardens, but probably little surprise regarding regardless of how uh, it, unacceptable the behaviour of people is, uh, it's a, a most unpopular job, in other words. Yes, and I think, um, that, uh, as you said, then, uh, SIP2, we rep- When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Present uh, the majority of um, traffic wardens um, employed by local authorities across the, the country. And uh, from our point of view, certainly over the last couple of years, we've seen a substantial increase in the number of um, issues being brought to our attention uh, with regard to attacks and abuse of, uh, of traffic wardens, who, uh, who this, this seems to occur generally in, in the course of their members um, discharging their duties. And at, at, as, uh, at the end of the day, the, the main Job that our that our members do is to ensure that the you know that public tour affairs are are kept clear and so on, and, uh, and that's generally done for the you know health and safety reasons for the public and all the rest of it. But certainly over the last couple of years, uh, the number of complaints we've received uh, from our members um, of attacks and abuse has certainly increased, and to the point uh, in some cases where we we now have uh, members of ours uh, uh, issued with. Um, uh, camera equipment uh, that they place on their chest to record their, their movements throughout the day so that in the event that mm. somebody approaches them uh, to abuse them, this, this this is recorded. Or in other extreme cases, we've had to um, uh, work out agreements with local authorities for uh, those workers to be transferred to other areas to, to put out of harm's way, if you like, because such such was the, the level of abuse uh, that they were receiving. So certainly this, this is an issue that, that that's on the rise. And from uh, SIPTU's point of view, what we're saying is, look, uh, the government and the department 
uh, concerned, uh, need to be more proactive. Well, in the government is the employer in this case, uh, and uh, there's a, an onus on them to uh, provide uh, a care uh, of duty. Uh, but uh, when we talk about traffic wardens, I suppose uh, it's not surprising that people will argue the point nobody wants a, a ticket. And it's one thing to say, oh, for God's sake, I was only there for five minutes or whatever the case may be. It's another thing to throw a bread roll at a, a traffic warden. And that happened in County Mead, I see in the paper. Also, in Navin, a traffic warden was threatened that he'd have his legs broken if he came across somebody's car again. And somebody else told another warden in Mead that if he was in his way the following day, that he put his head through the windscreen. Completely unacceptable behaviour. It's, it's completely unacceptable. And, and again, people from, from the, the, the union's point of view, um, the, the, those streets and those towns, there are people working. That's their workplace. And we've been calling on the employers to take a zero tolerance approach uh, to where uh, members are abused by, by members of the public. Mm. And indeed, that there should be uh, criminal proceedings instigated against against people who do, uh, do that. Free and, uh, that way. Is there a difference between a, a traffic warden and an ordinary citizen in the eyes of the law? If you assault a traffic warden, is it more serious, in other words? Um, no, but they're all treated as, as, as members of the public. But we've been, we've been calling for some time uh, for um, improved protections for public servants um, who were who were abused or assaulted in the course of, of carrying out their duties. Um, at the moment, you know, when you, when you look at the news reports, you, you scantly see any uh, reporting of people taken to task for abusing public servants in the course of, of performing their duties. It, it, you know, it rarely happens, and you rarely hear about it. Mm. And, Really, there isn't enough of a deterrent out there uh, to, to dissuade people from doing that. People, the members of the public, need to understand that our members are only doing their job. If they're issuing out tickets or fines, it's because the person themselves has done something uh, that's probably illegal. Uh, and uh, our members shouldn't, shouldn't find themselves on as the recipients to, to, to abuse on that. But as, as workers, it requires the, the employer to be more proactive in actually prosecuting people uh, who, who abuse our members. And indeed, uh, if it's serious enough, uh, there should be criminal charges levelled against people who make uh, threatening uh, or intimidatory behaviour or worse against okay. members. County Loud or Loud County Council also uh, responded to this Freedom of Information request. And uh, there's reports in uh, the paper this morning of a traffic warden's car being rammed and he suffered injuries as he fled the scene. Uh, However angry the uh, other person was, uh, it's inexplicable. Uh, And in Dundalk in 2017, a traffic warden was punched in the face uh, after he was recognised in a a pub. Uh, Traffic wardens have often uh, also been threatened uh, by shotguns as well. Yeah, well, look, without without sort of getting into any specific Mm. examples... um, uh, the, I mean, certainly that that would reflect a pattern that 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 certainly that would be have been brought to our attention or, or our members' attention over the last couple of years, and that that those uh, serious uh, incidents, the rate of them uh, certainly anecdotally appears to be on the increase. Um, we need to um, change the pendulum, and, and the balance needs to swing back in in, in favour of protecting our members who are doing their jobs, and there needs to be urgent action taken, uh, you know, to 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 spell out to the public that this sort of behaviour is not acceptable, and if it happens. There, were, there are consequences for the people who do that. And that's where we need uh, the department and we need uh, the government to step in and take a proactive and, and zero tolerance 
uh, approach to that type of abusive behaviour towards our members. Okay, thank you for that. Brendan O'Brien, Public Administration and Community Sector Organiser with SIP2. Now, let's go back to some more of uh, the comments uh, that you've been sharing with us and Marie on the phones. Yes, Michael, I'm just going to return to um, the discussion on Brexit because, as you and I know, our listeners don't forget much. And Trina messaged us to say, Michael, didn't Councillor Emma Coffey say months ago something about being prepared for a hard border? Now all the talk is about hard border and no party is prepared for it. All running around like headless chickens. Emma Coffey was right and was ridiculed for it. Okay, by Michal Martin, I think. Uh, But uh, I think a lot of people have been talking about a hard border since uh, the summer of 2016. Moving then to your interview with Enda McGorman and the the struggle uh, schools are facing to find substitute Mm. teachers, we had a phone call from Margaret, who's a mother of three school-going children, and says that this seems to be a growing problem, getting replacement teachers, especially for teachers who are out sick. She says, though, in one case, though, her um, daughter's teacher was off for three months and they couldn't get a replacement teacher. This was in secondary school because the subject that was being taught, the teachers are in short supply and she just wanted to make that point. So we'll finish on that one, Michael. Thanks for that, Marie. And thanks to everybody who has been in touch with us. If you'd like to add to what's been said, as always, we'd love to hear from you. Our telephone number is 1850-715-958. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, some 36,000 members of uh, the Irish Nurses and Midwives Organisation are scheduled to strike on Wednesday when uh, the HSC says uh, there'll be a restricted service in emergency departments, emergency theatres in patient and other wards, planned obstetric procedures and uh, that planned inpatient and day case surgery in hospitals will be cancelled, which will be of significant concern to many people who've been waiting a long time on those procedures. It also says outpatient appointments will not go ahead, local injury units will will not be operational for listeners. That means uh, the minor injuries unit in Dundalk won't be opened. They also say that public day centres for older people or people with disabilities where nurses are employed are to be closed. Routine community services in nursing and health centre clinics will be cancelled. Day hospital services in community nursing units will also be cancelled. And there seems to be no sign of a resolution. Let's talk about this uh, with local members of uh, the Regional Health Forum, Dublin North East, Green Party Councillor Mark Deary and Sinn Féin Councillor Darren O'Rourke in Louth and Meath, respectively. Uh, good morning to both of you and thanks uh, for joining us. Uh, Mark Deary, uh, it seems a little bit strange uh, when we're talking about a region that has pretty effective uh, working hospitals. Uh, we don't have uh, the type of uh, trolley uh, problems that we see in other parts of uh, the country, which in itself seems odd because uh, I think Our Lady of Lourdes was one of the worst hospitals in the country, now one of the best performing country, uh, hospitals in the country. Um, this is a national issue, uh, Michael, and um, there are regional expressions of it. And you're right, there are times when this region has featured very poorly in the, in the um, trolley count lists uh, and now is featuring a bit better. But the underlying issues uh, haven't really changed in, in my mind. Um, the lack of capacity, the <clears throat> the inability. Well, that to, has changed. The inability to open new beds because that has the, changed because of the lack of staffing. That has changed in, in terms of the number of beds, the number of new nurses that mm-hmm. have been recruited. Yeah. I don't think so. I think it has in Our Lady of Lourdes Hospital, which is why we don't have those trolley. Oh fillers. yes, yeah, mm. yeah. Well, I, I'm speaking about the national issue, mm. and I, I don't mm. see how um, how any single region can exclude itself from 
what is a national a national well, uh, day of action. Well, it's a national day of action, and there are really significant uh, problems across uh, the country. But in hospitals uh, that are working so efficiently, is it fair on patients who have been waiting on operations to be told that their operations have been cancelled? Yeah, I, look, I, I understand the incredible inconvenience this is going to cause. I, I have a child in, in there today on a minor issue, but um, uh, and there'll be 13,000 cancellations across the country on the day with a, a further 2,000 planned procedures uh, not going ahead, 15,000 in all, which will knock on to longer wait times mm. um, down the road. And if there's a further day of strike, that, of course, will double again. Mm. So this, this does store up problems, future problems. What the INO, what the um, nurses and midwives are saying is, is that there appears to be a political vacuum at the top in regard to their uh, th- their um, efforts to, to resolve this, or at least to put the strike off on Wednesday, um, and that repeated calls for, for meetings with the Taoiseach and with the Minister for Finance have not happened. Uh, the Minister for Health, as we know, mm. is, is off at the moment. Um, I think there is a case from coming back, by the way. Um, <clears throat> So, th- so, so there does appear to be um, um, political, a political driver here, which is the, the lack of uh, engagement with the very top of government. And given that this is only the second time uh, that there has been an all-out strike in the 100-year history of the INMO, mm. um, I think that vacuum needs to be filled very, very rapidly today, if possible. OK. Uh, do you believe they should be paid the increase they're looking for, the 12%? Um, they're looking, that's their stated target, but, but I, I think it's perfectly obvious that they're looking for a discussion in the round across a range of issues, uh, and that, that uh, there's, there's no red line on that before mm. they enter into discussions, and I think that's more important. Okay, Darren O'Rourke-Sinn is uh, supporting uh, the nurses in uh, this dispute and says uh, they should be paid to the increase. Uh, where do you get the money from? Yeah, well, I, I think on a point both myself and Councillor Deary are going to a, a regional health forum meeting this afternoon and, and the range of issues will be discussed not least amongst them the, the nurses strike but we will also discuss for example the huge cost overrun in the National Children's Hospital you know mm-hmm. so there within you know two separate issues completely related to each other you have you know an argument and, and the, the figure is disputed in terms of where you might what the figure is first of all in terms of the the increase for, for nurses, some say in the region of 300 million. And on the other hand, we talked about, you know, 10 years ago, it was going to cost 700 million to build the National Children's Hospital. Now that's gone to close to 1.7 billion, so a billion euros. So I think um, I think within the conversation around where, where to find the money, we have to look at how we are delivering our, our health services. And we can see clearly that, Nurses don't don't take the action that they're taking today or, or taken during the week um, lightly, and, and I think that's clear uh, clearly the case given given what councillor Dearness is in there over the last hundred years, mm. um, and they're doing it on the basis of a, an acute and chronic problem within within the service, and you've seen it where our graduate nurses um, and and I, I'll make this point: I'm a practicing medical scientist in the in the health service. I am one of those allied health professionals um, that has a degree qualification as and is paid on on a scale according to that. Mm. That is what graduate nurses are looking for in their in their pay dispute, and I think that's entirely reasonable given the fact that nurses have taken on additional responsibilities. There are now clinical nurse managers. They've taken on management responsibilities. They've taken on responsibilities in terms of ad, ad, advanced practice. And I and, and I would say 
that there is scope for expansion of that, and, mm. and that's an important consideration. Well, can you talk about nurses in isolation? Uh, and if you do, uh, would it uh, not be naive of you uh, if you didn't expect other public servants to come forward? If they win this dispute, well, then you'll be talking to teachers and guards and firemen and whoever else. Yeah, well, well, I think some of that, and it's it's not unreasonable to have that conversation, Michael, I think, because 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 that's always how it's framed um and we saw it when lewis strikers were 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 going on on lewis workers were going on strike mm, we saw mm, it when bus, it was bus air and mm, workers yeah, we saw yeah. it when the Gardaí. and you know last week um in davos we had the situation where essentially the world is looking at ireland and saying your your economy is built on sand that you're you're a, you're a tax haven that there's international money foreign direct investment been washed through the the place and mm. and uh, and and at the same time, you have Leo Varadkar and, and the Irish government not willing to 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 chase the apple tax, and and you have you have those whole contradictions. We dare not talk about a wealth tax. We dare not talk about the the wealth inequality in this country because to do that will you know set the horses uh, racing. You know, and and I just think it's it's completely unfair and it's completely unrealistic unre- and. And by international comparisons, it doesn't happen elsewhere. So if you look at Scandinavian countries, they can do both. You know, they can have well-paid nurses and doctors. And, we have well-paid and, nurses, though. This is the and, point. But, uh, we have the but, third best-paid nurses in the world. We can have, they can have well-paid nurses and doctors and deliver excellent public services in terms of, of transport infrastructure and also have mm. a, thriving, uh, a thriving, thriving economy. The difficulty, I suppose, by, by that comparison is that Irish qualified nurses have excellent qualifications mm. and, and increasingly so, but also they're in demand in English speaking countries that, relatively speaking, you know, you go to Australia, you go to New Zealand, it comes with, you know, better pay in some cir- circumstances, not better pay in other circumstances, but most certainly a better quality of life. And that's. Right, let me go back to Mark Deary, uh, because uh, I suppose people will be concerned about how this will impact on them or people they're concerned about, like your own child, uh, who needs uh, some care through uh, the public health service mm-hmm. in uh, this country. And whilst Darren O'Rourke's arguments may be valid, or at least valid to uh, some people listening to us uh, this morning, they're political arguments, aren't they? And aren't they the arguments that we should be having at the time of an election uh, and not the type of thing that can be addressed during an industrial dispute? Yeah, look, I think I think Darren's exposition on on um, our our tax um, take our tax attitude to, to corporations is, is is valid and feeds into the argument, but it doesn't solve the immediate problem, um, and that's what needs to happen. And I'll just come back to the, the basic point. Uh, I, I really do think we are now at the eleventh hour, and it is time for engagement, serious engagement at the very top of government with the with the nurses and midwives um, organisation to try and issue by issue go through what needs to be done here. Um, there is a globalised market for, for, for nursing skills now. Um, nurses have options to leave. And I, I, I don't think it's pay that's driving them away. I think it's very much working conditions uh, and the kind of um, pressurised environment they're working in and, and also the, the, the overall uh, management framework within the HSE that people are having to deal with. Mm. I, I constantly come across... Um, just a, a lack of satisfaction among people within the HSE at the at, at the um, the way they're they're organised, managed, resources are allocated, and and the way decision making happens. 
it's an extraordinarily complex and broad-ranging organisation that probably needs to be mm. probably needs to be uh, segregated out. But when you talk about compa- capacity and yeah. pressure, is this not going to compound the problem? It is in the short term, it certainly mm. is, but if there can be a long-term resolution around capacity, and that probably does come back to the whole idea of separating out the private and public health system. Again, not a conversation for these two days, but, but, but a very significant underlying issue uh, in my mind. Um, until we have that kind of um, really properly functioning single-tier health service, health system, with, with, with a private one running parallel mm. for those who want it and want to work in it and want to be treated in it, fine. Um, but until we have that, I, I see these capacity issues and these complexities and the divided loyalties of, of, of consultants, really, who, 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 who nurses depend on in terms of their own efficiency. You know, there, there, was, there was a huge criticism by the Taoiseach about Christmas leave recently, that, that, taken mm-hmm. across the health service. That was very much driven by the fact that it's consultants who take leave and nobody else can work without their guidance, you know. So um, I, I really think that there's, there's a whole range of management and structural issues that need to be addressed here. This has been said a thousand times in your show, I know, mm-hmm. but it, it's, it's still true. It still underpins this issue. But right now, right where we are now, with, with a day and a half to go, um, I would again uh, urge the parties to, to, to get down and on, a, on an issue-by-issue basis begin mm-hmm. to look at how they can resolve this dispute. And that's the beginning of the story, Darren O'Rourke. Yeah, I mean, there may be more to it. I mean, just go back to Darren O'Rourke, because on Thursday we may be talking about how well the service coped despite the action, or not, as the case may be. But then we're into uh, other days of a strike and three days rolling strikes, and God knows what after that. Uh, there is a lot to be concerned about, isn't there, and patient care to be concerned about. No, absolutely, Michael. And and uh, Councillor Deary mentioned the implications in terms of the number of of outpatient appointments and inpatient appointments that that uh, will be will be forced to be rescheduled. And I know in St James's we've been notified in terms of the the implication for ourselves. Uh, I work there, um, and the same can be said right across mm. across the country. I, I I do think it's important to note as well though this nurses' strike has happened within the context where consultant hospital doctors went to the High Court, essentially, on pay dispute. We have general practitioners, you know, on the brink of uh, industrial dispute and risk. I just believe, you know, there's an undercurrent of of chaos within the yeah. health services. And, it, you know, it's it's across the board. And it's, you know, to, to try and fracture it um, the way I see the government trying to do, I think it's just to completely um, ignore the, 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 the real problem and... Um, and it, it is of major, major concern for public representatives and for the, for, for the communities at large. Mm. Could, could I just say, I, I, I'm picking up that breaking point issue for GPs as well, uh, Michael. Um, mm. More than once in the last month, um, I've, I've met with GPs under the most enormous uh, stress who really don't know how they're going to keep going. Um, and it's not sustainable. The, the, yeah. their, their working conditions at the moment are not. There's a whole different range of issues there. Um, they're, they're, they're self-employed in most cases, but... Um, there, there, are, there are there are very profound issues oh, yeah. on the, the cold face. Well, they're, going, they're going to be busy on Wednesday. <laughs> they are, actually. You know, uh, they are. Well, they what are, do, because what, with minor injury uh, units... Uh, well, what do you do if you sprain your ankle on Wednesday? Yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, there are yep. things that you, you just need medical care for. They may not be the most important thing in the world, uh, but what are you going to do, sit in the hospital till Thursday? Uh, and what if it is serious? I mean, some of these elective procedures, planned surgeries that they talk about, they may not be emergencies, but they're very, very important procedures for the people who are waiting on major surgery in uh, a lot of the circumstances. They sure are. And and even people on waiting lists mm. with, with minor uh, ailments, 
the, the sheer time it takes to get seen turns that into a more significant ailment. Mm. Um, it's, it's, it, but you're right, look, Wednesday is going to be highly disruptive for people who, who get hurt or get sick. There's no question about it. And um, I think for that reason, we still need to work towards a resolution or, so that the talks begin and the action is, it can be called okay, off. Look, we'll leave there for the moment. Thanks to both of you for joining us here on the programme this morning. Green Party Councillor Mark Deary there. Also with us, Sinn Féin Councillor Darren, Darren O'Rourke, both of whom are members of uh, the Regional Health Forum Dublin Northeast. Michael Reed on LMFM. Third Age has welcomed uh, the suggestion uh, from Minister Jim Daly uh, that a uh, new Uber-style Uber transport system would be introduced for rural Ireland. And uh, to talk about this with us now, Anne Dempsey, Communications Manager and Training Facilitator with Third Age Ireland is on the line. Good morning, Anne, and uh, thanks uh, for joining us. Uh, you better uh, explain to us what Uber is, please. Okay. Um Jim Daly's idea, Michael, is that uh, people in rural Ireland, in towns or villages, small towns or villages who don't have uh, who don't have sufficient taxi service or have no taxi service, would be in a position if they are guardavetted, if their car is NCT'd, and they have the, if they have the requisite. Re- insurance to carry a passenger, to set themselves up as an Uber driver, like based on the American model, to take people perhaps within a 15 kilometre radius of their town, and a fare obviously to be agreed. Maybe I haven't heard about any any of the finances yet, but maybe a minimum fare or then the cost for a kilometre or something. And we have welcomed it because uh, for so many reasons, as you know, with Senior Line, we have callers from all over rural Ireland. And so many of our callers, Michael, would have been calling us for, for years. And a lot of them now are off the road. They're not able to drive or they can't get insurance to drive. And the difference in their lives is absolutely huge. OK, what's, the, we, what's the difference between that and a taxi? Well, I suppose the difference between that and a taxi is that I don't think you'd need a taxi license. Mm. I think it's much more, it's in a more informal arrangement. Now, mm-hmm. I think there have to be, there have to be proper, proper structures, obviously, mm-hmm. you know, and I think the guard of vetting would be hugely important. The insurance aspect would be hugely important. But I suppose if it's done within, within a town mm-hmm. and even within a village, you'd be known as somebody that it'd be safe to get into the car with you. For, you do know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So that it will be regulated by the whole population. Uh, and people speak very highly of them because it is uh, kind of self-regulated or regulated by uh, the public uh, because exactly. whilst you're not licensed as a, a taxi driver, you may occasionally provide taxi services uh, and people will rate and endorse the driver and the service and uh, quite often it's much cheaper than would have been the case otherwise. But it's the, it. but it's the fact, regardless of whether you call it a taxi or a, an Uber or whatever, that you can get a lift somewhere and yeah. pay somebody, a taxi service. So that's what matters to people who are devoid of such services at the moment. Yes. And you would remember, Michael, that I would have mentioned to you perhaps mm. uh, within the last few weeks or so that our organisation did a survey among older people, we called it, What Makes You Happy? Mm. And what we were really amazed at, one of the questions was, what cheers you up when you're down? And an extraordinary over 90% said, getting out of the house. Mm. And if you can't get out of the house, if you can't drive, if there's no decent bus service, and we know with the best room in the world, the public bus service and train service and all of that, you know, in rural Ireland is 
isn't isn't fit isn't there's a gap don't mm. it? it doesn't mm. meet all, all all its needs never mind people needing to go to you know hospital visits or gp visits you know so there's the whole social thing and then there's the whole necessary thing so well, that's it i mean it, we usually talk about rural transport in the context of alcohol and drink yeah. driving limits and that sort of thing uh, but yeah. uh, there's a, a lot more to it many more strands to it in fact people uh, who can't drive or won't drive at this stage in their lives Exactly. And I suppose the other piece that I was thinking about is that life is uh, life for older people com- becomes quite local from that yeah. point of view. But if the local facilities are closing down, as we know they are, like the local post office, local banks and all of that, and if you have to go further to field to do your necessary business, and there isn't a local bus service except once every second Tuesday, I mean, you're caught, you know. So this kind of idea could be really, really beneficial. And I suppose the other thing, Michael, and I don't know whether you and I were talking about this before because we talk about a lot of things together, is that in the wake of the whole Prince Philip thing, there's some kind of, um, uh, you know, statement like, should older people be put off the road? Which I think is a desperately ageist kind of um, uh, statement, as if older people's needs are less than others and if our need for companionship and to do our business and Mm. to go out and about, it's so draconian to make a statement like that, you know? Mm. Who said that? I mean... Oh, there's a a typical journalist thing, um, one of the uh, British tabloids, uh, and then it was kind of discussed here that it's very, uh, you know, using a a, a sledgehammer to to crack a nut. What's the the logic of the arguments? Uh, I usually try to understand arguments, but I don't understand the logic of that argument. Is that you would be put off the road at a, a certain age or is it because of your eyesight or because of your uh, capacity or ability to drive or, or what is the logic of the argument? I think there was no logic in the argument. I think it was a, a kind of a device to take Prince Philip's situation and to translate it into a kind of this kind of very um, you know, trivialising statement, mm. a kind of, you know, okay, older people, you know, Prince Philip is should is, is a problem. Maybe Prince Philip shouldn't be driving. Maybe there's lots of older people who shouldn't be driving. Mm. Ergo, should older people be put off the road? One of these kind of questions, rhetorical questions that were asked to get mm. a few rows going and a yeah. few uh, few discussions on radio and in the media. All right, I, I was watching some young fella there uh, last week uh, checking his uh, Facebook app on his telephone while he was driving wow. along and smoking wow. a cigarette and all that should, should he yeah. be taken off the road yeah. Yeah. and should all should all young people be taken off the road yeah, well, well there uh, we go uh, yeah. there we go indeed as I say I don't no. understand yeah. the yeah. logic of the argument uh, I think it's a ability to uh, command a vehicle that uh, matters isn't it Anne very much so and yeah. I mean I would think if the research and I don't have it at my fingertips but mm. I think research would probably show just as they're suggesting that older people do have less accidents than do younger people. Now, I suppose we have to leaven that by mm. saying there are fewer older people on the road than do young, but even if they're in a level playing field, I think older people tend to be more... I, I shouldn't be generalising, mm. but mm. I am a bit. But maybe we tend to be a bit more uh, careful drivers. Well, uh, I think you're responding to uh, generalism uh, or generalisation, uh, and uh, therein lies uh, the problem. Uh, if you're able to drive, you're able to drive, and it doesn't matter if you're a young person, you shouldn't be taken this off the road for being a young person and vice 
Christ, very Saviour, help This is it. This yeah. is it. Uh, you wanted to talk to us uh, as well about uh, an increase on the VAT rate on some food supplements. It's amazing the different amounts of uh, VAT rates that there are. Uh, and this is a, a point that is being made in relation to this because uh, the VAT rate on hamburgers is 13.5%, uh, but it's to increase to 23% on some supplements. And I think, um, just thinking about this from an older person's perspective, the situation, Michael, is that I think some of the research would indicate that older people are are able to get Sorry, are unable to get the same amount of nutrition from a, their food because of other things that, that are going on in their body. For example, there's an acid increase in their tummy which neutralizes the nutritional effects of food. So a lot of older people do begin to take various supplements, again, for, you know, for some more supple joints, for kind of this whole fish oil bit, mm-hmm. for their heart, all of this kind of thing. And... Um, I think as well as giving a real positive health effect, it kind of gives a feeling of confidence and I'm looking after myself. And again, you know, old people aren't necessarily terribly for who look with money. So anything that you're kind of budgeting for and that adds to your health and well-being and feeling of doing something for yourself and your feeling of confidence of being out in the world, I mean, it's a shame if you have to begin looking at that and saying, well, I can't afford that. And I'm kind of, that doesn't, that makes me feel a little bit, you know, Mm. and uh, 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 and whatever it is that you're buying could go up by two, three, four, five euro. Yeah, exactly. Which Mm. is, you know, no, no small amount if Mm. if you're buying a few things every month, you know, a lot of people are. Very definitely. Yeah. All right, Anne. Well, listen, yeah. uh, we'll leave there for the moment and thank you as always. Uh, for Thanks very us. much, Michael. Can I, as always, give our number? Please do, yes. You're very good. So it's Senior Line. It's our national helpline for older people, open every single day of the year from 10 in the morning till 10 at night. And for the last few years, we've become a free phone, so it doesn't cost anything. We're 1800 80 4591. All right, Anne. Thank you indeed. As thank always. you, Michael. Anne Dempsey, Communications Manager and Training Facilitator with Third Age Ireland. Michael Reed on LMFM. AA Ireland is calling on uh, the government uh, to clamp down on fraudulent insurance claims. Uh, Barry Aldward, Senior Senior Media Officer with AA Ireland, joins us now. Good morning to you, Barry. Good morning, Michael. For joining us. 12% or or 1 in 8 of some 5,000 people that uh, you surveyed believe uh, that they've been victim of a fraudulent claim. Yes, this is a long-standing issue when we come to insurance, particularly when we come to claims following crashes. Personal injuries claims can be exaggerated and can be, in some cases, outright fraudulent. So we wanted an idea of what, uh, to what extent that has been an issue for Irish motorists. And as you mentioned, of the 5,000 we surveyed, about 8.3% coming back saying that they strongly suspect a fraudulent or exaggerated claim has been made against them in the past. And another just over 3% describing themselves as somewhat sceptical of a claim that had been made against them. Now, I suppose, look, we do need to say that someone may be sceptical of a claim made against them. Doesn't mean that the claim was fraudulent or exaggerated. They could just think, you know, I don't think they were injured that badly and living in with a bit of denial. But it does highlight an issue that, you know, we have when we come to court settlements, court, uh, claims going to court, that we are seeing cases where personal injuries are being greatly exaggerated. 
Right, uh, because it's worthwhile and whilst there might be nothing wrong as such with uh, the person, uh, a serious dose of compensation sets in. Absolutely. So I think, kind of, again, you don't want to necessarily say that everyone who's pursuing a personal injuries claim is exaggerating it. Not the case. People genuinely suffer serious injuries as a, as a result of car accidents. But you do, I think there was a former High Court judge questioned a couple of months, if not a year or so ago, whether Ireland has a problem with exceptionally fragile necks or a bit of a tendency to pursue exaggerated whiplash claims. And that's just one area of this. And I think you see, you know, most people will be honest. And if they're putting in a claim, they're doing so because they are legitimately injured. But you do see some people thinking, well, hold on. If I go to court, I could get a nice payout here. And, you know, worst case scenario, if I go to court and the judge decides that I am exaggerating this, really I'm unlikely to face any degree of prosecution for that. So you do get people thinking... There's a potential great reward financially and very little risk. Does that ever happen? Uh, what do you need uh, to uh, prove or disprove a whiplash, whiplash claim? If somebody's wearing a, a collar, uh, how do you disprove it? Uh, so it can be a difficult one to disprove. We have seen cases in the past where whiplash claims have been disproven on the basis of people claiming whiplash, but then you know an insurer or a private investigator producing proof that they were in the gym every day of the week, or even I think there was one case that Insurance Ireland came across who, uh, well, I'm not sure how long ago now, but a case of someone claiming to be seriously injured following an accident, and it turns out they were, they were part-time fighting in MMA. So again, you do see cases like that, and I think what the problem we face is you get people who will try and take advantage of a system where there's really no prosecution for perjury, there's no prosecution for lying about an injury. Mm. I think that's where we really need to see the legislation catch up. But how often does that happen? I mean, you're talking about private detectives uh, surveying uh, people uh, and monitoring their movements. Uh, Is that commonplace? It it can happen. I mean, again, Mm. it depends on, A, firstly, you know, so you have... In terms of personal injury cases, you have about 30% that are settled outside of the court. So that is either settled by the personal injuries board or settled by the insurer directly without going through court. You then have 70% of cases which go to court. And again, you know, it, you can't put a number on how many of those mm. ultimately lead to an investigation, but it is something that insurers, with the cases that go to court, mm. they are trying to make a more concerted effort in, you know, finding out the truth about that and okay, but, pursuing uh, questionable uh, claims. If you go to your doctor uh, and uh, you outline the symptoms of what would be considered to be whiplash, uh, and you have a collar on and you don't go doing martial arts or go to the gym or you're not uh, followed by a private detective or whatever, you'll go to court and get fifteen or 20,000, won't you? you? You can get up to that. We've seen whiplash awards up to that. And but it won't be contested, in words, Barry, will it? Sorry? There's no way of contesting it. Very difficult to disprove whiplash, and I think this is one of the areas where we're not necessarily looking to disprove, but I think bring court settlements in Ireland for whiplash back in line with kind of an international standard. Whiplash settlements can be 15, 20 grand, which is 
grossly out of out of um, out of position with what you can see in the UK or in other mm. countries in Europe where you're talking about lower cash amounts or I believe it's in Germany where they cover the cost of any rehab or any physio you require, but there, that there's no direct cash compensation. Well, I do know people who have had whiplash and uh, it's uh, very bad sometimes uh, very painful uh, and people are out of work uh, and their lives are turned upside down for some period of time and maybe it's warranted and these are legitimate claims uh, but not always uh, the case so how do you determine which is and which isn't? I think that's where what we have right now with with the uh, current personal injury system is we should be adhering to the Book of Quantum in court. So the Book of Quantum is something that was produced by the Personal Injuries Assessment Board and it will weigh up every factor with your claim. So, for example, it will consider, you know, have you been out of work, the nature of your work and how your injury could affect that. So, for example, if if you seriously break an arm, well, if you're a painter, that's a much more of an issue for you than if you're in another line of work where that's not an issue. So what we need to see is judges using and adhering to that book of quantum a little bit more. And I think we need just to strengthen our legislation around around cases of perjury or exaggerated claims so that people can be prosecuted for those. And then you get people starting to question, well, do I really want to pursue my questionable claim? And hopefully the cases that are then going to court are the genuine ones. All right, and as we've discussed before previously, uh, this money isn't just paid out. Somebody has to pay for it, and uh, that is uh, other road users and uh, those uh, who have uh, insurance premiums uh, and are unhappy about how much they have to pay because of uh, these claims that are being made fraudulently on occasion. Uh, It's uh, very cold weather, Barry, uh, and maybe uh, we could talk a little bit about road safety and ask people to be careful on the roads. Uh, We've had an off-light night as we've been here five lives lost, uh, a man in Kilkenny and four young men driving at high speed. It would uh, appear in a single vehicle accident in County Donegal uh, and at uh, this time of the year it really is a, a time for people to stop and think and to be as careful as possible. Absolutely, I think we're going to see some pretty bad conditions it appears this week. We've even seen kind of cases of frost and ice around the country already this morning so most best piece of advice I can give to people, reduce your speed Keep an eye on the weather conditions, you know, so if you know, for example, that you have to go somewhere early in the morning, check the weather forecast the night before, check what they're warning about, but definitely reduce your speed, leave that extra bit of distance between yourself and the car in front of you, and I think the ultimate message for people, it's better to arrive at your destination half an hour late, but do so safely then risk your life by trying to get there on time. Well, that's it, uh, to arrive uh, rather than uh, being worried about uh, arriving late. And you'll see people in a hurry in the mornings, uh, regardless of uh, the weather. But uh, quite often people are are surprised to come out uh, to their car being frosted up. And there's a tendency on occasion, at least, for people to drive off without defrosting the car. Definitely. I think it's a bit of a bad habit that a lot of people have where, you know, they'll clear the tiniest little hole on the windscreen that they can and they're there distorting themselves, their bodies at every angle, trying to peer out as they're driving along. Take five or ten minutes, leave the car fully defrosted, check that your mirrors, your rear view mirrors are defrosted as well. 
and ultimately that's going to play a part not only in your own safety when you're out driving but it will improve your visibility and help you make sure that other road users stay safe particularly if you're driving around with with reduced visibility you are posing a great danger to cyclists and pedestrians accidents happen of course uh, and uh, if despite your best efforts uh, you come onto a nicey stretch of uh, the roads and going to a skid uh, what uh, advice for people again so if you're if you're driving along you know keep your speed low if you find yourself skidding ideally you want to turn into the skid don't jump on the brake suddenly you want to kind of use gentle braking maneuvers to keep the car under control and if you're driving in an icy area and you're driving uphill for example stick to your lower gears and as i say just keep the speed down Mm, and uh, if that sounds impossible to achieve maybe better to consider whether you should be on the roads i take it Absolutely. I think uh, if the weather really takes a turn for the worse and we get severe ice or frost or even potentially snow on higher grounds, question our journey. I mean, it's better, you know, to arrive at work a little late and give yourself time to wait for the roads to clear. Or again, you know, we, we saw cases last year, particularly during the extreme weather we got, where you people questioning, like, is it is it safe for me to go out to my hairdresser's appointment? No. If you're asking the question, better off to stay at home, especially if it's something that can be easily rescheduled. Very good. And uh, we hope uh, employers keep that in mind. And more to the point, we hope we don't get uh, the weather uh, to the extent that we're talking about, uh, at least uh, the bad weather to the extent that we're talking about. But Barry, thank you indeed uh, for joining us here this morning. As always, Barry Aldworth, Senior Media Advisor with AA Ireland, brings our programme to its conclusion today because our time has run out on us once again. Remember, before we go, that as always there'll be a podcast of today's show available on our website lmfm.ie this afternoon thanks to Marie Kearns for producing Maggie McGuire for researching and Chris Marie in the control tower I'm Michael Godwin and we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM good morning bye bye The Michael Reed Show podcast tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM to contact us email now michael at lmfm.ie 
That's stamps.com. Code program.